you can go three weeks without food, three days without water, three minutes without oxygen, but you can't even go three seconds without your mind working. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Joining me today is Dr. Caroline Leaf. She is a communication pathologist and cognitive neuroscientist with a master's and PhD in communication pathology and a BSc in logopedics from the University of Cape Town and the University of Pretoria in South Africa, specializing in cognitive and metacognitive neuropsychology. Since the early 80s, she has researched the mind-brain connection, the nature of mental health, and the formation of memory. She was one of the first in her field to study how the brain can change neuroplasticity with the direct mind input. Dr. Leaf's new book is called Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. That is also the name of her podcast. Welcome, Dr. Leaf. On your podcast, you always ask your guests to say something about them that we won't find on their bio. What can you tell us about yourself? (laughs) There's so many things, but one of the things that's a fun thing is the way that people often ask me how I relax and wind down because I do a lot. I still run clinical trials. I run a research team and a lot of people do a lot, but I'm always like, I wrote this my 19th book and I've got four kids. And so what I love to do is I have an infrared sauna and it's one of my favorite places to go and just decompress. And I watch movies like Grey's Anatomy and Bridgerton and Downton Abbey and all those really nice, soppy, relaxing movies. So I love that. It's one of my favorite things to do. And as a family, we love to watch like Lord of the Rings and go for walks and that kind of thing. So we do a lot of that. My infrared sauna is my favorite little decompression place. (laughs) So your new book is called Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. That's also the name of your podcast. Yes. And what you say is many people do not recognize the need for proper mind management and how it both supports and sustains a healthy lifestyle. I'm glad you actually raised that as a question because it's really critical to the work that I do. Basically, our mind is always with us. You wake up with your mind, you're doing this radio show with your mind, you go to sleep with your mind, you eat with your mind, you talk with your mind. We don't realize that our mind is pretty much everything. It's all, I've been using the term lately, it's your aliveness. You're alive and that's your mind. On a psychological level, this is how you think, feel and choose because being alive is that you are thinking, feeling and choosing about everything that's going on around you all the time. From the moment you wake up till the moment you go to sleep and then at night you sort out the thinking, feeling, and choosing that you've been doing during the day. You can go three weeks without food, three days without water, three minutes without oxygen, but you can't even go three seconds without your mind working. So mind is is the primary source. It's your aliveness. It's energetic force around and in your body. We can use the physics of gravitational fields to understand mind. It's 99% of who you are. Your brain and body are 1%. So your brain and body are responders and your mind is this active aliveness generator, responder processor, and it's massive, yet we don't pay enough attention to it. What we pay attention to is the physical, the brain, and I've been in the field for nearly 40 years now, and I practice clinically for 25, and I still do clinical trials. I don't practice anymore, but I did for a long time, and my whole goal has been to understand what is mind, what are thoughts, what are memories, can we manage them, do we have any level of control? What's the difference between the mind and the brain? And how do we direct the 
neuroplasticity, which is the change that the brain will go through as we think and feel and choose. And the answer to all of those questions is that your mind's always working, thoughts are real, you build them with your mind, which is how you think, feel and choose. And we do have control, we do have agency, and mind is malleable, so we can actually train it. So we can train the skill of mind in ourselves and our children. So the earlier we start, the better we become at managing our minds. So mind management is not just a now and then thing because our mind's always working. If you not manage it, then it's messy. If you do manage it, then you're managing the mental mess because we are, we do get messy because we, we can't control the events and circumstances of life, but we can control our responses. So mind management helps us to see, okay, I've responded in this way. I've built this toxic thought in my brain. This is the signal it's generating, the emotions, anxiety, depression, or whatever, which are not illnesses, they're warning signals. So this is what I'm going to do about it versus, oh gosh, there's nothing I can do. Life's like a big apple tree just falling on my head, knocking me out, and I've got a brain disease and there's no hope. And which is kind of the message we've got today. Uh, Laurie, which is actually awful. It's a it's an awful message. And then we get more with you know the COVID, the pandemic. We get more and more messaging of oh, there's an increase in mental health and there's a pandemic. And I hate the way that it's putting so much fear in people because from the beginning of time, man has battled with uh, with their mind. It's not anything new. So when they say one in four people are depressed or one in five people suffer from anxiety, I don't agree with those statistics. It's a hundred percent of people are battling with anxiety, depression, grief, desperation, frustration, exasperation because that's those are responses to life, to the adverse circumstances and the uncertainties of life. And so as soon as we recognize that and recognize that we can then, then we need to train ourselves to manage our responses in order to have peace and wisdom living through life, then we actually entering the realm of mind management and self-regulation. So that's been the motivation of my work. This is my 19th book and it's my most succinct and simple explanation and most up-to-date scientifically explanation of how what mind management Management is what mind is, what brain is, and how to do mind management as a lifestyle. And do you want to talk about how to do mind management? Absolutely. Just very quickly, maybe we could just go back a couple of steps and understand mind brain. I threw that out pretty quickly and just understand that a little bit about the sort of science behind that and what happens in terms of the responses. So if I start there and then I can move into a little bit of the mind management. So essentially, I mentioned very quickly, but and briefly that our mind is not our brain. That's the first thing you really do need to understand is, is that our mind is not our brain. Our brain is part of our physical body and our brain and body collectively are about one to 10% of who you are as a human. So if you look at yourself, this is what you can see is about one to 10%. And obviously inside is the brain and the heart and all the cells. And But then you get down to the subatomic level and you get down to the fields that we generate, which is work that Einstein did and his colleagues and gravitational, quantum physics, gravitational fields, a, a huge body of science for over 120, 30, 40, 50 years of science, showing that as humans, when we alive, we have this energy field force around us and through us. And that is mind. And that's 99% of who we are. So on a scientific level, it's these fields around us. And if someone's dead, it isn't there. If you're alive, it's there. That's why I said in the beginning, it's like your aliveness. A way to visualize this is maybe to think about, let's say you walk past someone very quickly and you kind of just brush them and you get that electrostatic kind of shock. Oh gosh, there was like a shock. That's an example of the field. And then on a more psychological level, you may be in a super great mood and then you go and chat to some people who are just being so negative about what's going on around us at the moment and you start feeling really negative. So their mind, which is processing and talking and, and all the toxic thoughts in their brain are basically generating this energy 
from the amount of brain back at you and you're absorbing that and that's making you absorb toxic energy and you feel that in your gravitational fields of your mind and in your brain. So it's very real and it's something that we don't understand enough and speak about enough. In science, it's called the hard question of science. And I don't agree with that either because it's the most obvious question of science because just in order to pose that question, they use their mind. If it's the thing that's driving everything, why don't we study it more and why don't we talk about it more? The closest we get to mind in the wellness movement or the self-help industry or even the entrepreneurial in all the leadership and all these books that people write to help us grow, which are all great and fantastic. But the closest you get to mind is people will say, this is how you manage stress and they'll tell you to meditate or that's not enough. That's just one tiny portion of brain preparation, but it's not actually mind management. And people don't realize that as well, that you may be doing this fantastic exercise routine, or you may be doing this fantastic eating in this wonderful way, but your mind is actually driving your digestive system. So if you're eating this organic, sustainable farm to table, wild, organically grown food, but you're very anxious and not managing that argument you keep having and those patterns in your life, and you just keep reacting negatively all the time, you lose, that influences your digestive system and the ability of your body to assimilate the nutrients You by a factor of 80%. So you will have 80% less benefit from that food than if your mind was right while eating. And the same thing with exercise. I was at the gym with my husband yesterday morning and I keep using this example, but some lady said, oh my goodness, I just come here to get it over and done with. And I thought, well, you've just lost 80% of the benefit of being here just by that mindset. So mind really drives everything. So therefore, the system that I've developed over these 38 years, which initially began in the very clinical field of traumatic brain injury and people suffering with um, learning disabilities and, and back in the 80s um, and autism and dementias and also war trauma and sexual trauma, trauma, emotional stuff. And I was trained in the 80s and we in the 80s, they believed that the brain could not change. There was still an understanding that the mind could change, but the brain not. So the good thing about that era was that we saw the mind and the brain as separate, but the bad thing was that the brain couldn't change. That they believed. And I challenged that and said that the mind changes, therefore the brain changes. The mind uses the brain, the brain responds. So, therefore, if you direct your mind and train your mind, not only does your mind improve, but so does your brain and body. And so I started a 38 year quest to understand that and to try and translate that from the clinical applications with people with traumatic brain injuries and, and severe neurological issues into the world of just managing anxiety and depression, and which are not illnesses, they signals, warning signals, and into just the day to day life of we humans. So we're a mess. I mean, you can't get away from it from the beginning of time we've battled with our minds. So, um, and obviously extreme situations happen. Like if you live in a war-torn country, you've got that trauma. If you're under a very racist regime and which has been the case for so long, there's trauma there. There's trauma from maybe people suffering sexual abuse. And so obviously it ranges, but every human experiences levels of trauma, some more than others, as I've said. So trauma is an experience that we have and we experience it through the mind, and then it builds into the brain as a physical structure and also builds into the mind as a gravitational field and it builds into the, every cell of the body affecting the DNA. That's why we feel our pain. And that's why we have this like overwhelming experience because it's built in three places, mind, brain, and body. But what we also see is that the mind and the brain and the body are wired for love, which is what scientists say, which means you don't have structures in your brain and body to handle you know, war and death and terror and fear and all these 
like bullying and abuse, we, we don't have structures for that. So therefore, when we experience those abnormal situations, they threaten our wide full of nature, our survival. And in fact, when they build into the brain, instead of building into the brain in a nice, neat format and beautiful green tree, they build into the brain. And I've got a little plant here, and I know people are listening, but for you and I, you can see me, I'm holding up a little green tree. Instead of it being a healthy thought because thoughts are real things as you experience something you think feel and choose which is your mind and then you build this into your brain your brain responds to the gravitational fields of thinking feeling and choosing and then you build that thought that experience into your brain as a protein structure with chemicals and they look like trees so thoughts are real things they're the consequence of us processing an experience and they're made of proteins and chemicals but our brain is wired to have the proteins fold in a certain way which is healthy which means the chemicals and everything's all balanced and it's all nice and the energy way but if it's a toxic experience that's unmanaged, the proteins don't fold correctly. So we have a whole toxic structure forming in our brain. And the immune system then recognizes it in the same way that it would recognize something like the COVID virus. That's a threat to your survival. So the same thing that it would do with something like COVID virus, it would do with something like a trauma that has not been dealt with because that's threatening survival because there's nothing in your brain for that. So if you keep that toxicity there, like if you keep the virus there, you will get increasingly ill. If you keep the toxic issue there, you've increased your vulnerability to disease by 75 to 98%. So just in terms of what's currently happening, if we're not managing our mind, we've increased our vulnerability because we've reduced the functionality of the immune system by up to 60%. And we do not want a reduced immune system in when you've got COVID floating around out there. I mean, we've got to have a vaccine to fight COVID. We need immune systems up. So like in any period of history, we really need mind management. So we shouldn't be addressing the mental health issue as a disease of COVID. We should be addressing it as a response that we're having to COVID that, uh, that is a normal response. It's scary. We are depressed and anxious and whatever because it's all the scary changes in our life. We shouldn't see that as a mental illness to be diagnosed and labeled and which they've been doing for 40 years, which has created a terrible problem. People are dying younger because of that and ignoring the mind. We should see each person having an individual story and recognize there's a threat and a change to their whole lifestyle. They've got a story and we need to talk about these stories and we need to create systems and communities to be able to help us manage and process and deal with all the, the financial implications and health implications. We don't need more drugs. We need to throw money behind creating communities of support and getting people back on their feet again and helping them to be able to say, I feel anxious. It's okay to say that at this stage if you say you feel anxious, you say, oh, you've got anxiety disorder. Here's a label. Here's a drug. And now you've got a neuropsychiatric brain disease, which doesn't even exist, on top of the problems you're going through. And that's what we've been doing for 40 years. And that isn't solving the problem. In fact, what we see that this approach, and I talk about this in the book, is uh, all the stuff I'm saying is in the first half of the book that I've said this far, is that we see in our current era that we, a shocking statistic has occurred. And that is that for years, people have been living longer because of the advances in medicine and technology. But that trend reversed at the mid-2000s. And it started reversing back when they started this approach to just seeing you as a, as a brain and as a machine and chemical imbalance and took away your story and took away the whole experience in the community and deep meaningfulness and all those things that are just part of our humanity. And that trend reversed, we paying the price. So we entered COVID paying a terrible price for the sort of reductionistic approach to, to problems. And instead of seeing illness, anxiety as a warning signal, it's been seen as an illness and sold to the world as an illness that needs drugs. But it's not an illness. It's a very real thing. To say it's an 
illness invalidates the experience. To say it's not an illness, it's an it's a very serious warning signal that you need to pay attention to, and it's a, of an underlying cause. There's a cause, like a tree has roots, a thought has roots. Thoughts look like trees, and the roots are the experience, and the tree trunk and the branches are your perception and interpretation of the experience. And what you say and do is the expression of that interpretation. So if you've been raped repeatedly, or you've had repeated bullying, or you've had whatever trauma, terrible relationship in a marriage, that's an experience. The roots, the experience was the roots in, in the tree, the protein tree in your brain. The tree trunk is your perspective of life, like you're a bad person or life sucks or, or relationships never work for me or I'll never be happy. And the trees and branches are how you are interpreting that in terms of your behaviors and emotions, sadness and no trust and all that kind of stuff. And then that expresses itself in what you say and do where you have no self-esteem and confidence and you know maybe social anxiety and all kinds of stuff, which are, and depression, which are not illnesses. They just warning signal saying, hey, you've got to address the root cause. So we've got to like do this analysis of our trees from the warning signals, not go label something and whack a thing on. So whack a you know drag on to that, which changes your brain structure. They basically damage the brain. They numb the brain. So you may feel you're okay and better for a time, but it, in the long run, they actually damage the brain. In fact, there's a, a 14 page document that every patient who gets it, an antipsychotic or antidepressant or anti-anxiety, they're, they're supposed to get this whole document that explains all the side effects and it's a consent document and basically they, this is not given out but if people read that they wouldn't probably half the time they'd probably opt out and say listen I'd rather go and do therapy so what I've tried to do is take this very complex life that we live and the, the way that we are managing it, which is so ineffective, which is causing people, as I said, to die younger and that reversal of trends and the trend reversal is Eight people are dying eight to 25 years younger than they should, which is horrific. And now it's, with COVID, we can chop off another year. And the age group most affected are 25 to 65-year-olds. And we call them deaths of despair. And that's how we entered COVID. And now we've got COVID. And they're saying that the only way to treat this is, as I said, with drugs and things. So I really wanted to challenge this philosophy of 40 years because it's not helping. I also have the approach that every human is alive and therefore if you're alive your mind's working and we need to manage it so the neurocycle neurocycle is the system i developed over 38 years ago developed the theory developed it clinically first and then have done the clinical trials and research over the years and adapted it in a multiplicity of different environments so very wealthy very poor corporate educational individual trauma whatever i've tried to adapt it to research it in as many different applications as possible and I've written 19 books this is the 19th on this and this is the updated most um, simple version of the work that I've done and it's basically puts into the hands of everyone no matter what age you are obviously if you're a very young child the parent has to teach us to the child and I've got ones in the future books coming out for how to apply this with very young children and older children and so on this is a, basically a system that anyone can learn because it's simply how to manage your mind and it can be used for all the big stuff the traumas and everything which you do over time over 63 days because it takes 63 days to change a habit to build a habit to change a behavior not 21 and then you can do it in the moment 
just before this interview started, I was doing a bunch of things, back-to-back interviews, and then I had to quickly solve the problem in between. And that could have thrown me, and in the past would have thrown me because it was one thing after another. And I, I try to stay extremely focused for every single interview, and I love them. So I get totally involved with the interviews and talking about the stuff, but I had to handle a crisis literally five minutes before we started, and I used the neurocycle. So immediately I used the neurocycle, so the word crisis, so not a major acute threatening, but it's something that had to be managed, it had to be done in that moment. And I would rather have done it later after the interview, but I had to do it then. And so I did what I had to do, got my head back on using the neurocycle. So I had like 10 minutes or so before we went live with you. And that's when I did a neurocycle. So what I'm saying is that it's self-regulating your mind. Your mind's processing that event that I just referenced anyway. So either I can do it in a messy way, it's going to affect my ability to do a good interview, or I can manage it and do a good interview. And, you know, that's what I'm saying to people. I wanted to put that into people's hands and also, you know, help them to stop seeing anxiety and depression and all these scary words as uncontrollable things that are happening to me that I have no agency over. So in the first half of the book, I talk a lot about one of my most recent clinical trials, and I've got lovely graphs and then pictures inside the brain, and it's in color, just to show you that this is very real. When we did the the research, very quickly explain in a couple of minutes, and then I will explain the neurocycle. When I did this, um, the most recent trial, we had a control group who didn't get the neurocycle and the experimental group who did get the neurocycle. Both groups were tested extensively. So they had psychological testing. They had they did my self-regulation tool, which really looks at what's going on in your brain in terms of your mind management and your mind and so on. And also the narrative, what's going on in your life, what's your story of your life, and which is the most important. And also we looked at blood markers to see if there's inflammation and what's happening with cortisol, things like that. And we looked at DNA. We looked specifically at something called telomeres, which are the ends of chromosomes, which are part of the DNA ladder. If people think of Jurassic Park, so go from the DNA ladder to a chromosome, which is like a little X. So if you make an X with your fingers, your fingernails, your X, the X is a little chromosome and your fingernails would be the telomeres. Telomeres tell us how your body is handling stress and toxic emotions, basically how you're managing your mind. And if you're managing your mind, they're nice and strong and healthy, which means that your cells are healthy, which means that your body's healthy, which means you're resilient. But if you're not managing your mind and you've got stuck, you're living under the apple tree and the apples are falling on your head and life is just like getting bashing you from every angle and you're seeing anxiety as a disease and it's scary and that kind of situation, which so many people are living in that state at the moment. That means your telomeres are short and unhealthy, which means that your cells are unhealthy, which means all of your organs are very vulnerable. Your environment of your body has become very susceptible and vulnerable to disease. And that's why people are dying younger if we don't teach help people manage that. So yes, you can eat well and do the exercise, which will definitely help and definitely decrease the vulnerability factor, but it's not going to decrease it enough to take away that potential chance that you could die younger. So in order to do that, we have to manage our minds as well because the minds manage everything else. And so I showed that with the neurocycle within three weeks, we we have subjects, for example, coming in at the beginning of the study saying, I am depression because they'd had that label and who had tried everything, every kind of conditioning treatment and whatever. And, and their narrative was, I'm just sad. I'm unhappy. I can't do anything. Work's terrible. Life's terrible. Life sucks. I'm checking out. I'm so anxious. I can't cope. But we got a lot of that kind of narrative from all the subjects. By 
at 21 days, within three weeks, the experimental subjects who had the neurocycle were saying, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm not depression. I feel depressed because of. It's a, such a different radical difference. They're not seeing it as an it that's an illness. They're seeing it as a sign of something that's going on and they're starting to see why they're depressed. And they also made comments that, gosh, it really was hard because things do get worse before they get better. So as you neurocycle through finding out why you're depressed or why you're anxious or why you're so on edge all the time, you're going to start seeing things, the root of the tree, which is the origin, which is the story. But you've got to go through the signals and your interpretation, the signals, the branches, the tree trunk to get to the roots. And that's what the neurocycle does. It takes you through those levels to get to the base level, which is actually the origin story. And so by 21 days, my subjects were saying that kind of thing, which is phenomenal. And they had reconceptualized the story from I'm depression to I'm depressed because of, and this is what I'm going to do. And this is how I see it. By day 63, it wasn't just talking about it. It wasn't just knowing about it. They were actually doing that. They were sleeping better. They were back online working. They were back in relationships. Phenomenal changes. At six months, it was just, uh, sustained and even better. So the ones in the control group didn't get the neurocycle. They just got worse because we had all these test points. We tested them at seven different test points. So they were so aware that their body was not healthy, that their mind was not healthy, that we were prompting things from their unconscious to come up. And they had no management and they got so bad. Obviously, at the end of the study, they got the neurocycle. So at the end of nine weeks, they were all given that. But we saw their brains and because we looked in the brain as well, and we saw tremendous damage and things in the brain as well. But all of that can heal. And that's the beauty. You can change and you can change the changes manifest within three weeks, but manifest in terms of how you see yourself. But in terms of your behaviors, it takes another six weeks. So we've got to realize that change is work in these cycles of 63 days. And I've worked out exactly what to do, how long, all that kind of thing. And it's not that difficult. It's just that you do five steps, which is the neurocycle. It's five steps. You do it daily for 21 days and you take around 15 to 45 minutes. And I laid out in the second half of the book, I, it's so specific. I tell you what a neurocycle is, each step, what it does, what it does in the brain. The first half of the book's all this mental health stuff and all the mind and pictures and, and showing you case studies to sh help you understand and what this will do for you. In the second half, I teach exactly how to do the five steps, what they are. And then I give you lots of examples. So how to use it for a big T toxic trauma, like maybe a war experience or racism or bullying or rape or something like that. Or in a small T, which is a persistent, maybe you work for a boss who's really nasty and it's broken you down or you're in a relationship where you keep getting broke. So it's little T. So it's a lot of little traumas building up as opposed to big shots of trauma. And that also creates patterns in the brain that become very established that threaten your survival. And so your whole body goes into inflammation. And that's another thing we saw with the experimental group is that they had extreme high levels of inflammation, but with the neurocycling, no drugs, no medication, their telomeres lengthened, they got stronger, their inflammation reduced, their cortisol levels dropped, their brain health was phenomenal changes all within these three and then nine week periods. Everyone can do that. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get sick, that you're going to be happy the rest of your life. It means that you're going to recognize the signals and manage it. So instead of living in a 24-7, it's happening because life's experimental and you're going to have your ups and downs. But instead of there being constant downs and constant inflammation, it's going to be more of a cyclical thing where you, oops, I'm having a down. I know what to do. Let me bring myself up again. So it's that. And then eventually the downs are so few, the ups are so many that you can deal with things more efficiently. That's mind management. And that's something that we can train ourselves. 
we can imagine if you start with a child who's very young, doesn't mean that they're not going to have depression and things as they grow up, but they're going to know what to do. And that's the significant difference. You know, a suppressed trauma, I mean, a child who's abused as a young child, they don't know how to process that. The roots will be very toxic and their interpretation will be very toxic. And very often a child who's sexually abused will live in a state of shame. So their whole perspective, the tree trunk and all the branches are all about they bad, their shame, because they don't know what to do. And that was their coping mechanism. So very often we see with a young child who is abused that they manifest with either very withdrawn or very aggressive behaviors. And over time, as they grow up, this thing gets bigger and bigger and it's like influencing and eventually you get to the point and your brain protects and your body protects you so you can't deal with it really when you're so young and you need help but it does reach a time when it explodes and that then is when you need to deal with it and get the help and sometimes we wait too long and then the explosion is really big and other times we have someone in our life who recognizes the signals and helps us to start unpacking that and going to therapy and support system at home and I used to do a lot of family therapy helping the family to recognize symptoms and manage them and that kind of thing. All of that expertise I've put into the systems doesn't mean you replace therapy or support. We have, it's not about you, it's about you in the world. So we need coaching, we need counseling, we need therapy. But as long as we don't expect the coach to fix us, and as long as the coach doesn't think they can fix someone else or the therapist, because you can't fix anyone else, only you can fix you, but we need each other to see what we need to fix and to see the impact of the way we're living. The science of the neurocycle helps with that. So basically, the five steps of the neurocycle teach you how to look at the tree, the thought, which is that very real protein structure in your brain. It's in the gravitational field and it's in your DNA. So three places that your experiences get built into as thoughts with memories. So like a tree is made of branches, thoughts are made of memories. The neurocycle teaches you how to train yourself to be very self-regulated. We see from neuroscience that we can do this every 10 seconds, which is amazing. I don't mean you must look at your watch every 10 seconds. It just means that pretty much all the time when you're awake, you need to be consciously aware of what's going on, how you're thinking, how you're feeling, how you're choosing, how you're responding. How's that person responding to your response? How are you working? How's your concentration? How you're responding? Example, case in point, last night I worked, started with interviews at 6.20 yesterday morning with radio and TV. I finished at 9.30 last night. I had one one-hour break, which is not the wisest day because I was totally exhausted. And I walked inside and my husband said something. I walked inside my studio is built onto our house. And he said something very neutral, but I just snapped. And I snapped at him and got irritated. And it could have got into a big fight because what I said was, was just so unreasonable. And his reaction was unreasonable. And we could have ended up getting into such a stupid fight. It was just because I was exhausted. I recognized that and I owned it. I said the wrong thing because I was exhausted. And so immediately I caught myself, recognized the symptoms and said, I'm sorry, I am exhausted. What I said was not right. I didn't listen to you, but I immediately gathered awareness. So here's now the, the five steps. I gathered awareness of my emotional signals, which was I was very irritated and my behavior was very snappy. And my perspective was, who do you think, you know, I'm working all day. What are you, why are you saying this to me? Kind of thing. And my attitude was kind of negative towards him. My physical, my body was immediately totally tense. My entire body tensed up because I was so exhausted. So I gathered awareness. I didn't sit under the apple tree and let all those things hit me. I stood back and I actually watched myself do this because I've trained myself. So as it was happening, I went into this immediate multiple perspective advantage mode that I talk about in my book. And I looked at myself doing this and immediately managed to catch myself. And I recognize, okay, you're that, that's frustration, that's irritation. Second step, reflect. So I gathered all the awareness of the four different signals. I then reflected, which is questioning. Why am I doing this? 
And the third step is right. But because I didn't have a piece of pen and paper and it was all very quick, if it's in the moment, quick stuff, you can just visualize it. So I visualized what I was doing and I saw myself like a movie, which helped me to see the mess I was making. And then I did a, a quick recheck was, okay, how can I reconceptualize this? What is going on here? What's the pattern? Like, I can actually say, I can actually recognize that this is coming from total exhaustion. I just didn't take enough breaks. I'm not going to do that tomorrow. I need a rest. He's worried about me. He's concerned. So his question, I completely completely misinterpreted. What's my action first step? I'm going to say, sorry, that gave him a chance to say, you know, I was just worried about you. I wasn't accusing you of, of doing something wrong. And then I could say, I'm sorry, I was defensive. So in other words, we diffused the situation. It was over and done with within five minutes. In the past, that could have blown up and been something a lot more than that, because you say things that you often don't mean to say, because there's no wisdom happening when you're in that kind of state. So there's a lot of neurochemical chaos. So one of the things I did do to get wisdom was to try and drop the neurochemical chaos. So what I did was a deep breathing exercise, which is you breathe in for three counts and out for seven. And I did that three or four times, which reduced the um, neurochemical chaos of the exhaustion and the response that I was having, and also increased oxygen to the front of my brain, which decreased impulsivity. So I was able to then cycle through this thing very quickly. Now that's an in the moment example, but let's say now that you have this pattern of anxiety in your life and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Your body's getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and you're getting more and more problems in your relationships. You're starting to withdraw. That's become a pattern. There's something going on. If you go to a doctor, they'll tell you you've got clinical anxiety and drugs, whatever. You don't have to do that. You don't have a brain disease. You actually are, have the warning signals of something that's going on in your life. Then you would have to work through the five steps daily, 15 to 45 minutes for 21 days. And then from day 22 to 63, you do just step five. So that's quickly in a nutshell, but there's tons of information in the book. And there's also an app called the NeuroCycle app that goes with it that basically will help. And people to understand. Thank you so much for being on our show. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. And people can find out more about the book. They can go wherever books are sold. It's called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. The website's cleaningupyourmentalmess.com for the book. My website is drleaf.com. My Instagram and all my social media handles are Dr. Caroline Leaf. And I've got a podcast called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess where you can get lots of information. But the book's available wherever books are sold. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something. I know I have. Join us next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community and beyond. Thanks so much for listening.